So we are a clinical stage company that is developing technology to cure congenital heart disease. And we now have FDA permission to do the world's first clinical trial with these bioengineered cells. Is this going to eventually be the precursor to living forever? Any organ that is deteriorating will just be able to regrow from your own tissue. Is exactly what this technology enables. It's really interesting. I, I don't think I've ever had anybody remotely like that. We're 100% dependent on quality people. We're a lean, mean team. I mean, if we lose somebody, that's a huge loss. What do you do, though, to minimize your risk of someone leaving? I still have my hands in more than I should, probably. Maybe you stack 10 strategies together that each save you an hour, and that could totally change the trajectory of your business. What can we help you do first, second, third, in your opinion, that's going to get you closer to the finish line that you're after? Welcome to the Optimize Podcast, the only show that solves business challenges in real time. Join Nick Sonnenberg, a world-leading operational efficiency expert and marketing legend, Jay Abraham. Sit in on a new kind of conversation designed to help us answer the most difficult question of all. What am I not seeing? On this episode, we're going to find out how a leading medical startup can de-risk their team and revolutionize how they fundraise. Timothy Nelson is the founder of HeartWorks, a clinical stage nonprofit that is developing technology to cure congenital heart disease. He has received FDA permission to launch the world's first autologous heart tissue transplant. But as time is limited, key members of his team are irreplaceable, and he's trying to find a way to tap into philanthropic opportunities in corporate America. And before we get on to the show, if you'd like to get on the hot seat, just head to theoptimizedpodcast.com and apply today. Let's get into the episode with Nick, Jay, and our guest, Timothy Nelson. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. This is going to be great. Tim, I will completely botch describing what you do. Um, I know that... (laughs) I mean, what I gathered from what you do is you're like literally curing children with heart problems and helping to basically grow a new heart and replace their own heart with a heart that is genetically theirs that you grow. Did I get that right? You know, I love hearing when people get the story right after hearing me talk one time. So well done, Nick. Jay, isn't that kind of wild? I mean, with all the other people we've had. It's really interesting. I I don't think I've I've ever had anybody remotely like that that (laughs) I've ever uh, looked at. That's, may, may I ask how you got into that? You are a medical doctor, correct? Yeah, so I'm a physician scientist, uh, did my long training and did an MD, PhD. And, uh, you know, my story of how I got into it was actually at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I was training to be a cardiothoracic surgeon and I was, you know, the surgeons that do heart surgery. And um, I remember at the time as a medical student that we had some amazing cases where we would be able to do these open heart surgeries, have amazing outcomes. And and really celebrate in the moment of getting out of the OR with this amazing accomplishment of a, of a small child, infant, having surgery. Um, but then the parody of this, of the next day or soon after seeing a four-year-old child in clinic that is having heart failure, and we have nothing we can offer them. We can't even offer them a transplant. And, and the, that tension of feeling on one day we did something heroic, 
uh, and the next day feeling like all we did was delay the inevitable was a, was a very humbling experience as a medical student. And that really was the impetus for me personally to say, we got to do better. What can we do better? How do we develop better technologies so that we're not palliating the symptoms of these diseases, but we're actually fundamentally curing it? And um, as we sit here today, the technology is prime time for us to be able to envision a reality that we do that. That's really impressive. So, so are you, I mean, right now, is your company actually doing this commercially or are you in developmental? Where are you with this right now? Yeah, so we are a clinical stage nonprofit that is developing technology to cure congenital heart disease. And we have a portfolio of products from cord blood to bone marrow stem cells, and now these bioengineered cells that Nick articulated that we can grow your heart from your skin cells. And so we've treated hundreds of patients with stem cell products for congenital heart disease, and we now have FDA permission to do the world's first clinical trial with these bioengineered cells. So we are a clinical stage company, and we're launching the world's first autologous heart tissue transplant with the technology that we've been developing over the last decade. So what, what, how long does it take to go from the stage you're at now to this being a commercially used technology? You know, generally in the field, we'll talk about $3 billion in 17 years is what it takes for an idea to get out of the lab and get into a clinical practice. We've been working on this idea for, for a decade. Uh, we've, been, we've been developing it in the lab and, and working on it to get it to the point where we can get the safety profile of the product to be able to treat the first patient. So it has been a decade. Uh, we haven't spent a billion dollars on it, but we've spent tens of millions of dollars uh, to get us to this stage. Um, and now the clinical trial will be the next hurdle that's in front of us. Who's, and how are you funding this? We started this uh, um, as, a, as a physician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And uh, we have had the good fortune of having benefactor funding uh, to fund this work. And so we started HeartWorks as a nonprofit clinical stage entity. Um, however, the vision of the nonprofit HeartWorks is that we build sustainable platforms to be able to commercialize these products and bring these products to market. So we recognize that this is a rare disease. We recognize the market size is very small. And to take on a curative approach for a small market, we believe it does require engagement of the philanthropic community. However, we can expect philanthropy to develop cures, but we should not expect philanthropy to sustain the delivery of those cures. And so our business model, if you will, is to create the nonprofit entity to develop the cure, to test the cure, to validate the cure, and develop a for-profit commercial-grade platform that we can scale that and disseminate that. We can't ever expect the for-profit 100x community to come in and invest in congenital heart disease because it's too rare. And so we've had to come up with a unique platform to, see, to deal with this problem. I mean, Jay, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, right? Because this is not a normal company that we would be consulting. So Yeah, so uh, let me go right to the core of what we're always trying to do in these, in these sessions, Tim, is so you've got challenges, issues, 
opportunities. You are, it sounds like more than a bit temporarily constrained because it's not FDA approved. You have a suite of products or services, but it sounds like you 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 can't currently market them. Is that correct or wrong? So from a from a, a just a pragmatic standpoint, what if we can in the course of this dialogue not just showcase where you are and maybe you know maybe uh, help you you know resonate with some other benefactors uh, and and philanthropists, but what if we can help you given the fact that you are at least hamstrung constrained to do much with it commercially, what can we help you do first, second, third, in your opinion, that's going to get you closer to in the finish line that you're after? Yeah. So I think of the end, let's start with the end in mind. The end in mind is a product that is widely distributed to all pediatric hospitals doing open heart surgery, where we are literally rebuilding heart muscle with the bioengineered product that we create. And we have a distribution network to be able to make that product available to hospitals. And when hospitals use this this product, they can improve their surgical outcomes is the belief that we can do. We literally can rebuild the heart with your heart muscle with this technology. And how long does it take to rebuild a heart with this technology? So it, it takes us, so we're building autologous heart tissue. So we're taking your skin and making your product, your heart muscle. So in other words, when you do that, when you transplant it into your body, your body doesn't reject it. It's called an autologous tissue, meaning self. So it's a nine-month process to build your heart muscle cells from your skin cells. Nine months of every single day in the lab, there's a team cultivating and taking care of these cells. So it's a long process, but that's the end goal of the product development of how we are going to distribute that and how we're going to sustain that. And and who and in the end would be your customer? Would it be an insurance company that pays you? Correct. So the insurance company and or the hospital, right? And the so hospital. The, the, the business is evolving in healthcare where, where hospitals get paid for delivering an outcome. They're at risk, right? They have to deliver an outcome, whether it's a good hip replacement, a good catheter procedure, a good heart transplant. They are going to get more and more fixed payments for the outcome of the procedure. If we can get build products that improves the outcomes, decreases the complications, improves the long-term um, benefit of these, hospitals are incentivized mm. to be part of yes. this. And and I guess at first would would um, richer people be the 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 first kind of wave, but eventually you want this to be for anyone of any demographic. Well, so with our U.S. based system of product development with the FDA, um, we can't charge patients for these experimental products, right? And so we would be doing this in a research setting as as the step that we're at right now, which would be available to anybody that's eligible. But going forward, our, our plan is that insurance would be would be the the payer for this, gotcha. and so you know it wouldn't necessarily be a, a a service that's that's being bidded on the open market. This would be part of the insurance bundled package of of healthcare. I know when we were together, we talked about uh, David Sinclair, who wrote Life's Lifespan, I believe his book, and then Martine Rothblatt, who's the CEO of United Therapeutics. Is there anything with their business models and how they approached things. Because, I mean, Martine is what grow 3D printing 
organs, growing them in pigs and transplanting them. I mean, that's not too dissimilar. And um, so is there anything with their models that you're familiar with that could be inspiration? Yeah. I mean, Martine, it's what they've done at United Therapeutics and what they're doing with the, the pig uh, organ transplant, genetical engineering. I mean, these are amazing innovations that um, are, are, are inspiring and, and there's a lot to learn from them. What we're trying to, what those, what we're doing that's different is that we're focusing on a very rare neglected area of healthcare, such as congenital heart disease, where the market size is so small that we can't reasonably rely on the capital sources um, that, that others have relied on. If you've got a common disease, high blood pressure, cholesterol, a common cancer, we have a pretty good system to develop products in, in our in our healthcare system, in our in our venture capital, in our in our product development. If you put a rare disease, um, rare disease by definition is less than two hundred thousand people in the United States diagnosed with it. We really don't have a good system to be able to build an ecosystem to do that. But here's the thing that people don't appreciate. There's $400 billion annually, 400 B annually donated to philanthropy in the United States every single year. It's our belief that this is a source of capital. This is a source of, of capital dollars that we should be able to build teams to be investable, to bring those capital philanthropy dollars into a product development ecosystem that then does de-risk the products to the point where we can bring other traditional sources of capital to extend the runway and ultimately develop it. So we believe that this is a unique way and we're not familiar with other models that are fully integrating the, the philanthropic community with a pathway to um, product development that is a sustainable, um, scalable solution. There's not other applications of what you've built to, uh, to expand the target market. Like for example, um, you said it's less than 200,000 uh, uh, babies are born with 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 this um, disease. I I was one of them, right? We were talking. I I had supraventricular and atrial tachycardia, and I had three months to live. So um, I fall into that rare bucket. Like, what about people that are older and need heart transplants? Or uh, if you can do this and regrow a heart with their own heart, can you do that? Maybe this is a really dumb question, but could you do that? on other organs, on kidney, on liver, on other things? 100%. So the, this is really fascinating to me, right? I, I, I can't fully explain this. I can just give you the facts and we should discuss this. So what you just said, Nick, is 100%. This technology of building your heart muscle is applicable to patients with ischemic heart disease and adults that have failing heart muscle. Um, this technology that we're doing is not unique to us. There's lots of people that have been working on this technology for the last decade uh, since the Nobel Laureate Prize, Shimi Yamanaka, uh, won the Nobel Prize in 2006. But here's the facts. The facts are that we in a heart works group focused on congenital heart disease have secured FDA permission, the first permission to do autologous heart tissue. And we have learned from the technology partners that we license some of the technology from. We're the first in the world to do this. So how did a philanthropics-funded uh, team of 60 people grown out of Mayo Clinic become the first in the world to get this product to clinical testing stage? 
And I would argue that it's our intense focus on congenital heart disease and the rare disease market that has allowed us to, at this point, win that race, if you will. But that doesn't mean we should stop there. We should develop the pathway so that when these products are de-risked, we can scale it to the more common diseases like ischemic heart disease and participate in that. And that is going to require capital markets to scale the manufacturing, to scale the ability to deliver at more wide scale. But as we sit here today, we have won the race to the first clinical trial in the, in the globe with autologous heart tissue. And we did that with a very, very focused effort. And I think there's some power. I, I, my mentor and colleague, uh, Mr. Todd Wanick, owner of Ashley Furniture, who funds our work, um, has taught me where focus goes, energy flows, right? And so where our focus is has allowed us to really flow the energy and, and move quite rapidly. And that's a, there's some interesting components to that. Let me ask you some curious questions. And this is more my, uh, my fascination with, with uh, process. So if you wouldn't mind, walk me through how you would do this. You, 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 do you have a big, is there a big... Petri dish and you basically, I mean, how does this, how does this happen over nine months? Because you've got this, I mean, how, how is it grown? How is it nourished with whatever it is, oxygen, blood, nutrients? It's, I mean, just for my curiosity, would you mind? Yeah. So what we start out with is we, we take a small skin biopsy from, uh, from your arm typically. We can do it on any age person. This is re the remarkable part. So we start with a small skin biopsy. It's essentially the tip of, a, of an eraser on a pencil. And that skin biopsy, we then take into the lab. We cut it up into very small pieces. We, we lay it out on a, on, a, on a plate that's a plastic plate. And the, and the skin starts growing out. Just like your, your skin would try to heal a wound, the cells will grow out of this skin biopsy in the lab in culture. We, overlay it with growth factors, and it grows there for the first part. We scale that to the point where then we reprogram those skin cells. That takes many months to reprogram the cells back into what looks and feels like an embryonic stem cell. And what I mean by that is you literally are reprogramming a skin cell, a single cell, to become what it was when it was an embryonic stem cell. When you or I were about three weeks old in our mother's body, after conception, um, that is the stage that we revert the skin cells back to. What's really remarkable, Jay, is when we do this process, those telomeres actually elongate and lengthen, and we literally send the cell chronologically back in time so that it, it literally is what an embryonic stem cell looked like at that early stage. Then the final step of the process it's a pluripotent cell, so it literally has the capability at this stage to become any cell type in your body. And when I say any cell type, I literally mean any cell type in your body these cells are capable of. And so then what we do, because we're trying to cure congenital heart disease, is we then train those pluripotent cells for another month or so in, in the cell culture to become beating, contracting heart muscle cells. And we literally can fill the palm of your hand with cells that are beating and contracting heart muscle cells that are genetically identical to you. Wow. 
So at nine months, we can freeze it. We can put it in a special vial and we can put it in low temperature liquid nitrogen freezer and we can store it indefinitely. Once we have that cell uh, stored and locked down, we then can take it out of the freezer when we are doing the surgical procedure. We can thaw it, we load it into a needle device, and we inject those cells into the heart muscle that's weak or damaged. And at this point, we have not done that in a human, in a patient, but we've done it in preclinical animal models, and we've tested the safety and efficacy of these products according to FDA guidance documents. But those cells are frozen at this point, Jay, and those cells could become available anytime that the patient would need them. When will you do it in a human? So we expect in probably 12 months from where we sit today that we'll be treating the first patient with that. Wow. We have to start the manufacturing, and it's a nine-month manufacturing process. Jay, I'm curious your thoughts on this, but with with how much like longevity now is becoming such a such a you know hot topic that's front of mind, could people even like me or Jay that don't, you know, luckily don't have heart trouble right now, as a preventative measure? Could people go and do this and, you know, it takes nine months to kind of bank this new heart that you freeze, but eventually will people preventatively just start growing hearts, organs, and put it on ice. And then God forbid, if you ever need it, you've kind of already got something ready to thaw out. Is that the future here? 100%. 100%. What's the cost on on this? Like, what's you, you know, when you take into account um, labor and everything that goes into this, what's your cost to, you know, to, to, to get to the point where you've frozen the, you know, this, this heart muscle? Yeah, so this is a great question, and, and most people will argue that the cost is way too high for an autologous product, building one product for one patient. We should talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. The simple answer to your question is it's approximately $150,000 is what our current costs are to produce one product that's frozen at the level that, that would be needed for a clinical yeah. uh, application. Well, well, let's talk that through because ultimately we want to get to kind of what, like, what do you need the most help with here from a you know, maybe it's raising money and the marketing and the and the JVs. Or also, I would love to dive into what does your team look like? What's your revenue look like? Where how are you operating? And where there are some inefficiencies? But do you have any revenue? Excuse me for stepping on you. Uh, so we do not have earned revenue at this point, right? We are we are doing this off of uh, philanthropic contributions at this point. Um, and the- so you got you got Todd, who I know, but. What is the process that you've used to date to get all your funding? And are you continually uh, uh, sourcing it? And have most of the uh, benefactors, philanthropists, donors, whatever you want to call them, have they been um, uh, foundations? Have they been individuals who had some sensitivity and empathic because they had an experience in their life or their children? Is there any kind of correlation that has, that has uh, been, been a denominator of the people who have, have contributed so far? Yeah. So the, the denominator, the common thread is people that are affected or aware of congenital heart disease are our main contributors. And in the Wanick family, Todd and Karen, have publicly spoken about their family being affected by congenital heart disease. And that has been their motivation uh, to be part of and create a platform. 
And that's, you know, that's really important to start there, right? But now that we've got the platform, the credibility, the clinical trials, the team, uh, and all of the infrastructure that's moving in this product development, we need to go beyond people that are affected and aware of CHD. And we need to bring this to a larger market. We need to raise a couple hundred million dollars more to be able to de-risk this product and really have a viable platform that we can scale to the, the for-profit sector and take on larger, more common diseases. So if there's the potential that this is a, also a longevity um, play, right, where even if you don't have an issue, you can bank a heart and kind of have that as some insurance that's on ice, so to speak. Um, would it be legal or could you go to just wealthy people and say, hey, look, donate. And then basically once this kind of passes through whatever stage this needs to pass through by donating a million dollars, we are you know, going to grow you a heart and put it on ice in exchange for donating that. And, you know, it's not not necessarily just for people with the disease, but it's for people that just want to, you know, bank bank this as insurance. Yeah. So I think what you're what you're driving at here, Nick, with your question is uh, is a requires an understanding of what the regulatory framework in the US allows and does not allow. Right. And so the regulatory framework in the U.S. for for medical development with the FDA requires us to do clinical trials, collect the data. But the key element here is that we cannot charge the patient uh, to do that. And and that's been a strength of, of the biomedical system, but it's also a weakness. Having said that, there are other regions in the world that you can do clinical trials and you can engage people to, um, to pay for the product that they're receiving during a clinical trial. So, you know, those are, those are models and, and partnerships that, that need to be explored to try to scale that. And there's no loopholes there where you set up an LLC that's separate from the nonprofit and they, you know, you owe them on the LLC, not on the nonprofit. Well, you know, there's there's probably models that I don't fully understand that, that this is, you know, where these discussions lead us to to explore uh, new new opportunities. And, you know, at the end of the day, your, your thought process is right. I mean, there's people motivated to be part of this. How do we align that motivation with the with the product development phase that we have to go through to make this real? And, um, you know, I think that these, there's probably models out there that we haven't fully explored, but we're obviously very cognizant of the FDA rules and regulations because we're 100% dependent on, sure. on abiding by that. And, and that's what drives our thinking, but doesn't limit us either. So, Nick, let me, let me uh, ask a couple of, so, so far you've got uh, uh, Todd, but how many total uh, philanthropist, uh, donors, whatever the right word would be, have you gotten? And what has been, you said that they had a, you know, some kind of a, a relationship with, with uh, congenital heart, heart failure, but have they been mostly individuals and or their foundations? Have there been institutions, foundations that have also, uh, like a heart foundation, or I don't know all that's out there, but is there anything I mean, if as you and as you've done this as as the whatever, if you've raised twenty million, fifty million dollars, whatever is necessary to fund your your work, I mean, 
how are you funding at this very moment? Are you getting adequate funding for the trials from the, the, the donors you have right now? So we have probably about a thousand donors that have contributed to our mission. Um, the, the largest uh, is the Todd and Karen Wanick family. And to date, we've raised nearly $100 million over the last decade to do and create what we've done. Um, we probably need to triple that to be able to complete the product development that we've envisioned over the next three to five years. Um, and, and we believe that there is investments in philanthropy to raise hundreds of millions of dollars when you've got a compelling story, you've got a compelling platform. But Jay, I think that what you're driving at here is, is, a, is one thing that we haven't done that we are trying to figure out the business case for is how do we engage corporate America uh, foundations um, that, that have a desire to be part of an impact. We have an opportunity to really drive and propel this forward with being the world's first here. And, and maybe people aren't directly affected by it, but they can see the impact on it and they can see the potential growth opportunity out of this. Imagine taking somebody that's donated philanthropically and we get to some point down the road with more clinical data and we do have a for-profit arm of our system. We should talk about that. And we can then create an investment opportunity for the for-profit. And there's this tipping point of, do we live 100% in philanthropy or do we tip into 100% um, uh, investments? And I envision that there's a tipping point at some point in our, in our ecosystem. And where that is, is, is an interesting debate and strategy to try to figure out. So let me ask you this, though. Currently, do you have a team, just like you'd have a sales team, of people that are out constantly uh, identifying, targeting, I don't use the word pitching, but putting into, into the pipeline a number of different entities, organizations, individuals, foundations, corporations, and constantly advancing and enhancing this this proposition? And if so, have they been uh, effective? Or if not, uh, you know, just sort of tell me a little about, about the, 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 um, the infrastructure that you have dedicated to raising the monies you need. So Jay, remember, I'm a physician scientist and we're technocrats and we're in the lab figuring this stuff out. And so the answer is no, and yet I can see the need for doing that. And now that we have this opportunity uh, to, to extend this, we, we have to be ahead of the curve on this. And I think you're highlighting, you're highlighting the fact that we're behind the curve on cool. and, and we need to address. But I love this. So let me give you, I'm going to throw out, Nick, if I may, some really quick, and then I'll bounce it back. So there's three related ways that I think you could do this very well. And, and the first is you can go on LinkedIn Navigator and take any kind of a person who would have or does have any role in either side of, uh, of charitable donations in, in anything remotely uh, related. And you could start contacting him or her and asking to pick their mind. You can pick their mind benevolently, you can pay them for their time. And you can say, rather than trying to know anything, you can say, here's the dilemma, here's where we are, here's the attribute, we got the only 
uh, FDA authorization to do the clinicals. Here's the, the, the challenge. How would you do it? What recommendations would you make? That's one approach. You could say, who would you nominate that you've met in all your related world who might be the optimal executive we could bring in who would be head of our fundraising department? Number two is you could organize an, a really inventive mastermind weekend where you took a little bit of your funding, you offered to pay the way of some of these people, and you had a brainstorming weekend sort of like what we're doing here on steroids, where you brought 50 different people who are on either side, people who've been raising money, people who've been giving money. And you basically threw out the problem and you didn't try to solve it yourself. You said, give me the ways you'd do it. Tell me all the strategies you would use. Who would you, you know, how, what kind of an infrastructure, if we needed to raise money, you know, what would we have to pay? Who would we have to do? What would be the 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 uh, the criteria we'd be looking for. I mean, I think if you did that, and you got some of your donors, your bigger donors, to come, they would be impressed enough to want to fund the acquisition or the creation of that that group. But I think that would be really interesting for you. No, I love it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And you know, if if you could convene a group like that of thought leaders. Um, boy, it, 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 ideas start flowing. We've got a great story to tell and uh, getting more people like that to, to think about it deeply. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, but it's also a Trojan horse. Ideas would flow, recommendations would come, but because most every one of these would have connections to sources, organizations, both sides, uh, opportunities for you directly would flow. And I just think I would be doing that I mean, depending on how your funding is right now, if you're okay until such and such a time, then you could do this more slowly and methodically. If you're going to run out and your current donors are looking for matching funds before they give more or no more funds, I would basically put this in place and you don't have to do it one time. Then basically you hire somebody and if they, I mean, there are there are professional, not only people, but there are systems and there are strategies and there are methodologies and there are, you know, there are people who are very good at this. And rather than trying to be theoretical, which you would be if you went into it yourself and you'd it'd be a, be a very long learning curve and you might blow opportunity because you didn't really have the right resonating, you know, positioning or buzzwords or know what, you know, the, you know, the hot buttons were. I just believe if you do this as soon as your budget and requisite need for, uh, you know, for the, the, the capital, uh, you know, uh, makes sense, you're going to get clarity, you're going to get knowledge, you're going to get connections, and you're going to move yourself to a much uh, higher level of access. And some of these people will, I mean, you're having to push whereas these people can pull for you. So think really, really carefully about doing something like that. Yeah, Jay, this is, this is great advice. And, you know, one thing we've realized as we've gone through this journey of, of doing this on a small scale is that many people have been frustrated with the philanthropic giving that they've had to some healthcare organizations. And in part, because the giving has been given to have an impact and solve a, a purpose or a cause that they're that they're interested in, 
The reality is academics is a slow process, deliberate process, takes time. And what we're doing with HeartWorks is being able to get institutions to work collaboratively across their individual silos and be able to, I'll use the word invest, it's donate, but invest in a team that can actually see milestones flowing. And I think that this could be very motivating for the philanthropic community that's on the sidelines right now. So there must be some number of discussion groups or organizations where the parents of these children living or deceased to confer. And I would think I would want to tap into that and leverage them and say, okay, we need your help and ask them who they know, you know, and ask them who they know that, uh, you know, that uh, is empathic, who they know who uh, has suffered themselves, who are really significant. And I would just do such intelligence gathering and maybe you're doing it, but if you don't think to do it because your training is being, uh, you know, a physician and a research scientist, somebody or some many buddies can bring this together for you and really accelerate the timeline. What, how long is the, how long will the clinical trials last? Yeah, I know that the clinical trials will take a couple of years uh, to, to execute on is, is generally speaking. Um, so, it, you know, th- there's a long timeline here and this is, this is important to be able to show milestones, deliverables annually to keep people engaged on this. Um, but, I, you know, I, I love what you're saying. And it, it reminds me that, you know, we, we are as technocrats, as physicians, as scientists, as technology developers, we, we will invest in the technology, the people in the, in the lab, the, the technical aspect of this. But at what point do you start investing in, in the sales and marketing to be able to grow this? And we're probably inherently always behind the curve in thinking that way. But, you're, but in this case, I mean, if you think about ROI, and again, I don't know how a nonprofit has to justify it, but if you find somebody or some many somebodies who can plug you in, somebody who can who can be the source. I mean, uh, we have a friend, and he's paid uh, a very large amount by universities to raise donations for them, big donations. And he's done it for five different universities and he raises hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. You don't, you, you don't need to, uh, you don't need to bear the burden and the yoke of doing it yourself. I mean, Nick knows this, uh, somebody that Nick knows and I know, but Nick knows him better named Dan Sullivan wrote a book and it's called who not how. You don't have to sit there. I mean, God bless you. It sounds like you've done a remarkable job if you raised $100 million. But if you need three and the people you've raised at fund are either tapped out or the ones that aren't tapped out, normally they get to a point where they say, look, before I'll give you any more, it'll be matching. You get, you get, you know, you get 10 million, I'll give you five or whatever. But when you get to that point and you get stymied, and you need somebody who's already broken through the morass, and there are plenty of people who can do it, and you need to get them on a mission crusade in your behalf. But, I mean, if you think about it, if you were already a commercialized business, you wouldn't try to do it yourself. You'd, you'd hire, you know, a, a vice president of sales. He or she would hire salespeople or reps. It's no different in this except for your goal is selling people and giving you the money. 
hundred percent. You're spot on. Um, and, and, and Tim knows Dan, uh, Dan introduced, uh, Tim to Joe. Yeah. So I mean, the point is you don't have to recreate the wheel, but you have to identify who already knows how to create and, and produce wheels. So, so I, I, I think that, so what are the roles in, in your team, Tim? You don't have a head of philanthropy right now or head of fundraising, let's call it, as a role? talking to him. You're the head of fundraising. Well, I guess in all practical purposes, right? I mean, yeah. we, again, we, we're, uh, we've, we've, outgrown, we've grown out of a technological kind of discipline. And as a nonprofit, that's, you know, spending money to make money is, is, is not something that comes natural. But it actually is, if you look at it, Every every entity that raises uh, donations that's nonprofit, they have very sophisticated fundraising executives and experts, and there's fundraising uh, consultants. But and there's also probably because in all every other field, there are people who can source money and move it. But if you're not aware of that, you need to. You need to transcend your, I mean, the te- for, for today, my strongest recommendation is change your terminology. Don't say I'm a technocrat. Say I'm the CEO of, a, a, of an entity that can never achieve its objective initiative unless I have skilled specialists who are supremely high talent who can bring to bear the revenue generating or the capital, let's restate it, the capital generating processes necessary to fuel our ability to achieve our goal. And you've got to be the CEO, not just the technocrat. And a CEO doesn't, I mean, a CEO of of something uh, significant, he or she might be, you know, the, the rainmaker. They might bring him in when they have a very big client to glad hand or to, you know, to have dinner with or to take on a tour of the facility. But the CEO is not the person who finds and sources the deal. He or she is the person who is the strategist and the visionary. And the and the and and they are the they they are the the inspiration and they are the 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 they they are the person who is rallying everybody, but you should not, it's, it's wonderful that you did this, but you should basically bring in and you should get, if you're going to, if you're going to raise money, you need the next round. Don't raise money for just, you know, for more uh, equipment or scientists raise money to hire a fundraising department. I, I would say so far, Tim, I mean, there's so many nuggets that we've gotten, but that one, you know, Fund a head of fundraising as a role or a team that supports fundraising. It sounds like, especially for you know, if that's the route, you're a nonprofit and you need to raise funds to continue what you're doing. That to me, and I want to get more into the operations and and I w- I'd love to understand too how like the cost, the 150, the breakdown, the labor, the team, etc. But if if I, I think so far, if if nothing else, that seems like a complete no brainer, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and you know, our, our dream is to be able to do that and to be able to define this tipping point of fundraising to invest 
Yeah. All right, Tim. So let's switch over. I have I have a bunch of operations questions. This is extremely interesting. So we've identified there's probably a need for a head of fundraising as a role, but could you just give it, give a bit of a breakdown? What does your team look like right now? What does your org chart look like? Yeah. So our org chart is is um, is a, at Heartworks is largely driven by uh, quality and manufacturing because that's where the product comes out of. And so we have we have a, a VP of quality and we have directors of manufacturing, um, and then within that we have an R and D arm um, of research and development for for product development. But much of what we do is is manufacturing, and then the other arm of it is clinical operations, where we own and operate the clinical trials, and so we can function as a sponsor. So we manufacture the product and we bring the product to a network of hospitals and, and manage the clinical operations and regulatory affairs that are required by the FDA. Um, and then we partner with academic institutions and academic programs from Mayo Clinic to um, other, 10 other academic centers to be kind of a feeder of ideas and knowledge that then we can operationalize into manufacturing and clinical trials. So, um, so how, what's the total headcount then on, on the team across all of those? Uh, our budget will cover the salary of approximately uh, 60 people across all domains. 60 people. 60. Gotcha. So when so break down for me when you said it's around 150,000 to to regrow regrow a heart um, what's the breakdown of that? Where's that where's that cost coming from? You know, a significant cost is is the people and the labor uh, that goes into uh, a 9-month manufacturing. Um, but a huge cost is probably equal to that is the media, the growth factors, the, the food that we feed the cells on a daily basis. Um, this, is, this is a huge expense of, of our manufacturing. And then we have facilities and equipment that are, that are obviously part of it. But it, it's a function of time and reagents uh, that, that drive that cost. Now, 154 product of this nature uh, would surprise many people that it's really cheap, but many people would say it's three, four times that. Um, but with our focused approach, um, uh, we, we've been able to be efficient with with what we do, and, and we've been able to do this in a research grade environment that allows us to do it at that price. When we scale it, there's definitely ways of automation, robotics, scalability here that could drive the reagent cost and the personnel cost uh, significantly down, and and that's a that's a tough moment to make an investment on a, on a five-year um, scalability plan when we're so focused on treating the first patient and doing the clinical trial and balancing yeah. those competing priorities is, is an interesting debate on the team. No, totally. I think, you know, you got to focus, you can't focus on everything at, the, at once. So you got to get those first success cases done first before trying to figure out how do you blow this up. So is there any other way to reduce the cost? Could, could you do, I don't know, I, I would imagine that a significant amount of this is like just waiting for stuff to grow, right? Right. So no, how many there's, there's some biology involved here, right? The, the biology of the cells and how they grow, there's things that we probably can't um, hack yeah. to the point where it's, uh, it's biology, right? But there's definitely, I mean, scalability is the solution, right? I mean, I think that's probably true for a lot of things that we, we do this, you know, 10 times a, a month. What if we did this 10,000 times a month, right? And the robotics and the automation on that, that would really drive costs down. And, and, and we do need to think about the scalability of this 
sooner than later and in parallel to what we're doing. That's that's a definite challenge for us. Yeah. And how do you guys currently, are you running this like a business in terms of how you're organized? Do you have team meetings? Are you using technologies that a normal company would use to operate? Yeah, no, I think we are. I think that we, we're a clinical grade nonprofit uh, that builds heart tissue, but we are doing it as a product development. So um, we've had mentors along the way that have helped coach us and mentor us into this. And we have product meetings, we have team meetings, um, and we have a we have a work plan that we set out for annual milestones uh, to define the deliverables and the cadence on what we do. So this is not your typical academic research lab that, you know, is, is stochastic in nature and exploratory and, you know, all good things come out of, out of the chaos and we publish papers and write grants. We're really here holding ourselves accountable. What is the most impactful milestones that we can commit to and, and report back to our, our funders annually of, did we deliver on the milestones that we um, defined a priori? And how are you just tracking tasks, projects, and then also for what you're doing, it sounds like really capturing knowledge and making sure that that is stored in a robust way, right? Because there's so much research that you're doing. It would be a shame to, you know, if someone were to quit on your team, you don't want all their knowledge leaving the moment they, they leave the, the research lab. So what? how do you go about tracking work that needs to get done and the knowledge that um, is being developed in the labs? Yeah, so different than a research lab environment, this is a standardized protocol that that you know we have FDA permission to follow to develop this process, right? So a lot of this is baked down into the protocol and what we're defined, what do we document, how do we verify what we've done. So we've got a we've got a very robust quality system in place that you would expect to be in place in any manufacturing environment. But let's also be honest. I mean, this is people dependent, right? The the process is important, but we're we're hundred percent dependent on on quality people. And uh, we're a lean, mean team. I mean, we lose somebody, that's a huge loss. And, and, and training somebody is, is, a, is a significant challenge for us. Uh, so the people are a priority in this for sure. So what, what do you do, though, to minimize your risk of someone leaving? Have you invested in documenting uh, processes or um, an on, if, someone, if you need to onboard someone, do you have a robust kind of onboarding to speed that up so you can add more people more quickly? Yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word robust or not. I don't have a lot to compare to perhaps, but you know, we don't like having a single person knowing a single task. And so we, we do focus on redundancy. People get sick, people come and go for sure. So having a redundancy uh, is, is a priority. But let's be honest, there's, there's people within our organization that we don't have a replacement for. And I think that's probably a function of a small startup that you know, we, we don't have redundancy in everything that we do. But in the manufacturing team specifically, where you have a nine-month process, you got to have redundancy, you got to have cross-training, you got to have people that can, that can replace each other. And, and it, becomes a, it becomes a team, right? It's really a, it, it's a team performance that you think of a teamwork on the basketball court or on the ice rink or something, there's a defined period of time where that team performs to accomplish a goal. We've got a team that's operating on a nine-month time scale to go from, from the input of the skin biopsy to the manufactured product. And it's a function of the team performance over a nine-month daily grind that, you know, this is 
this is a remarkable team and a remarkable challenge to uh, to motivate, to train, and to support a team to do that type of uh, accomplishment. Sure, of course, no, no doubt. You know, in my past life, I was a high frequency trader, and and as a trader, I used to have to take a block leave, so they would lock me out of systems for two weeks, and I would have to have someone else trade my books for me. So I'd have to document my algorithms, and um, someone else would trade for two weeks, and. Every year for eight years, there was always an improvement to how my books traded. And it created redundancy, but also sparked innovation. So one thing you, you might want to try is even doing some forced role rotations to, for, for especially the roles where there's some bottlenecks. And not only will it might, might reduce risk that you have on specific roles, but it might also just spark some new ideas of how to do certain, certain aspects of these jobs. Because, you know... Yeah. In my experience, people really um, just start doing things because it's the way they've always, it's always been done. So it's a it's kind of dual sided in the sense you, you'll get new ideas, but also minimize your downside. Yeah, I know. I love it. That's a great suggestion. I, I'll bring that back to the team for sure. But what what tools are you guys using to operate? Are you using things like Slack or Asana or or any kind of internal wikis? Uh, I, I like to rely on the water cooler is what I like to rely on. Um, we, we got good, we got good water and uh, we've got an open yep. work office and, you know, we, we, we recognize that we can't innovate and we can't do it unless people are physically together and COVID has yep. been a challenge, but you know, we, we haven't made a huge priority on, on communication channels because we've, we've really disproportionately valued the, the hallway conversations and, and we're a small enough team that that works. You can yep. imagine getting to a tipping point where that that fundamental yep. doesn't work. Well, even just storing your 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 knowledge, like like a like a um, a cloud based wiki, seems like something that would be really important for what you're doing because there's so much complexity. Um, you know, it could you could in a wiki you could store your vision, your core values. You could store um, various processes for all the different stages of what you're doing. And that way, as things change, there's always kind of one central source of truth that people can refer to. And not to mention for, for new hires, it'll make their life much easier. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I mean, and we do have some systems that are, that are probably more domain-specific within the manufacturing and quality systems that, that I personally don't even interact with that I, that I can't articulate in detail. Uh, but it's true, we don't have an overarching system that everybody can interact with. And, and, and um, Jay mentioned Dan Sullivan before. And, you know, Dan Sullivan has that concept of unique ability. Um, you familiar with that? You've spent yes. some time with Dan. So what, what gives you, in your job, what gives you joy and where, where would you say your unique ability is? I'm guessing it's anything related to research, researching this new technology. But... What would you say? Yeah, no, my biggest joy in what I get to do now is is tell the team's story. I mean, the team is a remarkable group. It's functioning and delivering the first time in the world on this technology. I don't do the manufacturing myself. I'm not doing any of the procedures myself. I'm, I get to tell the story um, to investors, to philanthropists, to others. And, uh, you know, it's really, really fun for me is watching um, our team that's in the manufacturing interact with a patient with congenital heart disease for the first time and getting those kind of connections. Um, that's really special to me. So, so being out of the lab and being able to tell your story where that could be 
you know, for example, on stage somewhere in front of a bunch of philanthropists, that would be kind of where where you would come alive and feel like your time is best spent. Yeah, I I love sharing our story and watching people realize, holy shit, I've got a skill or talent or resource that could align with this, and we could go from zero to a hundred with this partnership. Um, you know that that creation, that co-creation with new partners, new investors, um, we've just got an amazing platform, and there's so many of those opportunities. And and you're a great speaker. I could imagine that. You know, if you did hire that head of, you know, head of you know, fundraising, and they booked you a bunch of speaking at strategic places, that you it'd probably be a pretty good use of your time, don't you think? Yeah, no, I I I come alive in those moments and and those connections for sure. So, if that is what gives you the most joy and you think is the best use of your time, what percentage right now of your time are you spending doing that? Oh, less than ten percent. And so where's the other 90% being spent? Um, in the office, working on the day-to-day, the strategy. Um, I, I still have my hands in more than I should, probably. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't label my... You have a COO? Um, so we have a chief operating officer that, that manages all of the books, all the day-to-day. So I don't do any of that. But I spend my time in, you know, what's next? What's the next protocol? How do we define this? I'm involved in the clinical trials. And so I've got my hands in a lot of the of the details on on the clinical trials, not so much on the day to day on the manufacturing. There's a team that's autonomous on that front. So, yeah, I mean, we would have to spend some more time together here. But I mean, if 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 you're spending less than ten percent of time on where your time is best spent, you know, I would love to look under a microscope, you know, so to speak, and um, really analyze. Where's this other 90%? And what's, you know, maybe there's some of some of that 90% that's really going to be hard to pull you out of in the short term. But maybe there's even if you could free up 10% of that 90% because it's inefficiencies that really aren't contributing much value. It could be how you're scheduling, how you're using email, it could be in various places. But if you could even free up 10%, you then are doubling the amount of time that you are spending in your unique ability going from 10 to 20%. And, you know, it's not just a 10% lift. You're literally could be doubling your productivity by finding that bottom 10%. So, you know, on a separate, you know, maybe we, we do in the future a, a follow-up or uh, outside of this, I'm happy to chat. But, you know, that's, that's one way to look at this is how can you just find 10% more breathing room, which could yield doubling your productivity, literally. Yeah, no, it's a it's a powerful way of thinking about it for sure. I I get what you're communicating there. And Nick, uh, a derivative of the previous suggestion I made, it would be very interesting, Tim, given your self formulated way of allocating your time as CEO, if you would be able to go back in time to other research non nonprofits that can't gave birth to breakthroughs that they were able to then uh, take commercially to market. And you were able to get a hold of the CEOs who were the leaders at that point and ask them to chronicle for you how they best use their time in the process. And you overlaid that with how you use your time to see 
if you're in alignment or whether they had higher and better use a case that you hadn't thought about? Yeah, it's a great suggestion. There's there's a couple of organizations that come to mind and that would be a great ask for them to share with me. Reality act. And because, you know, I, I can tell you that old funny saying that it seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, you look back and go, oh, my God, if I'd used 15 percent more of my time doing this or that, how much faster or higher or or more viable could we have been? And then after the fact, you go, oh, why didn't I see it that way? And the reason we don't see it that way is we have tunnel vision. The only way you get funnel vision is asking, asking really intriguing questions of people that have already done it, but done it well or successfully or reduced the timeline or, you know, or they were better uh, in, in, uh, you know, in, uh, in shows to raise money or they were whatever it was. And if, if that confirms that you're using your time, your opportunity, your resources to optimal advantage, then it only feels good. If you see that you're not, there's no shame or embarrassment, but what if you could shift, you know, a very modest amount, but get a huge yield? And and maybe, maybe there's some roles needed to hire here that are outside of the roles that you've already described on your org chart that might not contribute directly to the research and development, right? Or the manufacturing, but might contribute to freeing up your time and others' time so that it could be used in higher higher yielding activities. You know, you might even want to just log every activity you do that isn't the best use of your time, right? Like how much like scheduling meetings in email in um you know anything that's kind of outside of that 10%, it would be good just like how people log what they eat, you know, log your activities in that 90% and then we could almost do a bit of an audit on it and try to identify strategies. Yeah, again, you, you don't need to solve the 90%. Solve 10 and it's still a huge win for you. But maybe it could be a combination of a few roles you need to hire, a few technologies that we implement. Maybe a virtual assistant could, t- even if it saves you an hour a week, You know, maybe you stack 10 strategies together that each save you an hour and that could totally change the trajectory of your business. Yeah. No, I, I, these are great suggestions. I, I love the the thinking and it's a, uh, it's a uh, orthogonal thinking to what uh, is in our normal playbook here. Right. So uh, this is, this is I, really good. I, I can't get out of my head to wonder I, how are you close with David Sinclair? No, I, I know of him. You know, I would, I, I know, I know his CEO, Ed, I, I, I wonder if, just you know, and Jay's alluded to this talk, like looking at people that are in similar, and rather than reinventing the wheel, seeing how others are doing it. Because I know he's doing trials, but then they also have a separate entity where they're raising money, um, and they're they're targeting affluent people that get early access to different things, and they've kind of got two things running. And I would imagine with what you're doing, that there might be a, and I don't know, but it'd probably be worthwhile to try to speak to someone like him. And you, you have connections. You run in similar, you know, you, you're, I know you know Peter Diamantis and others. I'm sure that you have access. And also Joe has a black book that's insane. You know, I would, I, I would imagine that you'd probably have some interesting conversation talking to a David Sinclair or others 
and see how they've structured things. But there might be an opportunity to have the nonprofit and simultaneously a for-profit um, that offers a whole other avenue to you. If your cost is 150k right now, and you know at scale you could get it down, but even at 150, you know if you were to do this for profit, what would be kind of the retail price to make it interesting? Half a million dollars? You have like a bit more than a three x, um, for each for each one. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I the way I think about it is, I think our price would stay at 150. We decrease the cost three x, and that gives us the margins of where we would go. It, but even if you don't, uh, of course, sure. But at worst case scenario, you know, I'm just wondering in the back of my head. Say you're you're targeting a that type of profit margin, and you were to charge 300 to 500k. I think there's enough rich people that you know would almost look at it like an insurance policy to kind of uh, have a heart that's on ice, ready in the very case, you know, on the you know, unfortunate circumstance they need to unthaw it. How many, what would need to be someone's net worth where that would be a no-brainer over, over, you know, you know, 50 million, 100 million. At some point, you know, if you're worth more than X, it's a no-brainer insurance policy. And there's probably enough of those people out there to make, to raise quite a bit. And could you, let's trail with that. Is there a legal way you could have somebody Donate one hundred and fifty thousand dollars right now, nonprofit, and have an option that is attached to it to be able to get it when it's when it when and after it's legal for cost. You know, we don't have that model mapped out, but I think these are the right questions, right? Because very interesting if you could do that's, that. That's what I'm wondering. You know, um, uh, I know someone that runs a hedge fund, and you invest in one entity. Where you have, where it's like owning shares in the IP that then unlocks the ability to then invest in the hedge fund, where then you have access to the trading upside, and it's if you can legally do it. And again, the same thing. You don't have to go to your attorney if he or she is not really. If they are good, say, tell me some of the most inventive ways people have gotten donations that were tied to commercial. If there's a legal ethical way to do it, and he goes, well, there isn't. And it's always well. Okay, you can't do that. What have people done? Just tell me what people have done. I want to know. And the same thing, every one of these issues, you don't need to be the, the, the you don't need to solve any of them yourself, Tim. You need to become massively great at picking as many minds that have been there, done that successfully, and then overlay that against your current mindset, strategy, mental you know, mental model and see if it conforms or whether there seems like there's a big gap and you see an arbitrage that you're thinking at a lower level, not that you are, but you might be. No, I love this thinking, right? Because what we, our core discipline is quality manufacturing of autologous hearts, right? That's our core. And if you think on a global scale, there's multiple markets that would want access to that technology. It's not just the congenital art. There's other form factors and there's other countries that, you know, you could biobank these things and you could make these available in new ways. And I think there's other audiences that are buyers. It's not just people with the issue now. It's people that want to insure themselves uh, for the future just in case. 100%. Is there a way, I wonder, again, I'm not very good at this, but I wonder if there's a way that if, if the for-profit has already 
a contingent exclusive uh, you know, right to when and, and if and after the, the nonprofit comes up with the technology. So, you know, they have the licensing rights or the, the commercial rights. And if they could give options on, on the, it's complicated as hell, options on that company to the nonprofit, the nonprofit could add those options as, as ethical bonuses when they got a, a donation that'd be sort of interesting. No, this no, this is kind of the area that, that is really interesting to me. We create a a club that has contributed philanthropically. We keep them updated. We we co-create the business opportunities as it evolves as we de-risk the technology. And you know that group has first right knowledge of where the investment opportunities are. And when the technology gets to a point where it's de-risked, where it makes sense to bring capital dollars in, we, we flip and we do that. And I feel like we're probably 18 months away from being able to flip into this into this investment world with the technology that we're at. That's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. It, 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 this has been a, a, a we have to. We have to wrap up soon here, Tim, but this has been super interesting. Uh, I'm, it, uh, Jay, hasn't this been a really unique model? That, you know, what, what, what uh, Nick and I enter anything, we have no idea what to expect. And conversely, we don't know what we can add. But I think it, if we got you thinking meaningfully differently about many things that you have done, uh, you know, your current strategy, belief system, and uh, and and against where there might be enormously greater. Now, you what you need to get is a you you need a knowledge asymmetry. You need a lot more knowledge about how other people do it and who does it. And I think when you connect all those dots, it'll open up answers and and pathways that you haven't even contemplated. I agree. So, Tim, I would like to to wrap up by asking you, what are some of your biggest takeaways that you're leaving this conversation with that um, you're going to ponder, possibly implement, and you know, maybe in six months, twelve months, we have you back on the show and 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 see what you've done with those yeah. things. No, I mean, there's there's a number of nuggets here, but uh, you know, off the top of my head here, looking at my notes is, you know. 10% of my time I'm spending with my superpower. What if we increase that by 10%, we would double our superpower. Um, you know, th- this is this is something that, that there's no excuses. Let's figure that out. And whether that's hiring people, whether that's realigning things, or that's stop doing things that that are wasting our time, uh, that we, there's no excuse for that. There's, there's people dependent on me doing that the right way. Uh, the second thing is, you know, you don't have to have the answers. Um, you have to have the questions. And if you ask the, the, the interesting questions to the right people, we will learn the pathway that, that's, that's most obvious. And, and, and that's, a, that's a different way of thinking, right? I mean, uh, as you sit in my seat, I'm, I'm usually asked for the answers. Um, and, and to put myself in the seat where I'm asking the questions, uh, this is a, a challenge that I need to embrace fully. That's great. I love that. You, you, you got it. That's very good. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, interacting with you. Thank you for your time and your, and your candidness. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity and I would love the opportunity to follow up. I mean, shit, this story is just in its infancy, right? We're sitting on the launch pad with the engines lit and we've got so much to learn, so much to do. And, and we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to, 
to cure a disease and to change the trajectory of healthcare. I mean, can you imagine anything more intoxicating than that? So that is, that's it is. Thank you so much for being you. What a privilege. Thank you guys. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you find the show helpful, please hit the follow or subscribe button. It does wonders for the show so more people can find the optimized podcast organically. If you'd like to be on the show, we have an open invite for anyone who wants their challenges solved. If you want to get in the hot seat, you can submit your business right now at theoptimizedpodcast.com. If we think you're a good fit, we'll get you on the show. If you have any questions, a recommendation, drop us a comment here wherever you're listening to your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. See you on the next episode.